Heavenly Father, we do thank You. We praise You, Lord, again, just for the greatness of, of who You are. We thank You for Your Word, Lord, that You are the Word. We thank You, Lord, that You've given it to us, Father God, that we can have a better understanding of how to have that intimate and personal relationship with You. We thank You, Lord, that You don't leave us alone, that You've left us with Your Spirit and with Your Word. So, Father, I pray right now our hearts would be prepared to receive from You. And again, I pray that man would decrease, that Your Spirit would increase, Father, that You would be our teacher, not the opinions of men. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said... Amen. This morning we're going to look at two things that can rob us of peace and godly contentment. You know, a lot of times as Christians we struggle with being at peace in our walk with God and we struggle with having godly contentment. And you know, as we'll see in the text today, that, that godly contentment is where we all ought to be as believers in Christ. But so often we allow things to distract us from having that peace that God wants us to have and from walking in godly contentment. And the two things we're going to look at this morning that can rob us of those things, and there are many others, but these are two main themes, I believe, of peace and godly contentment. And the first one is covetousness. You know, it's interesting that when I was a youth pastor, I used to teach the Ten Commandments in a real... You know, and I don't want to have anybody have to do this, but very rarely do you meet Christians, if you ask them, do you know the Ten Commandments and do you know them in order? Most Christians go, uh, I think I know them, but probably not in order, and I might miss a few, and... And, you know, you know, if I were a youth pastor, I'd have you all stand up and i teach you a real simple way of remembering it. But basically, it goes like this. There, you, you raise your hand straight up in the air, and that's how I taught the youth group the Ten Commandments, and they remembered it. You could quiz kids in the youth group, and they would remember it. First one is, thou shalt know their gods before me. So you point straight to God. Then the next one, you make an I, like in front of yourself, which stands for image. Thou shalt serve no graven image. Then you make an L. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And then you make the church in the steeple. You guys remember that when you were a little kid? Thou shalt remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Then you make an H like this, which means honor your mother and father. Then you say, thou shalt not kill, right? All right? Don't shoot anybody. Thou shalt not kill. Then you make an X like X-rated. Thou shalt not commit adultery, right? And then the next one is, you go like this, five-finger discount. Thou shalt not steal, right? Thou shalt not lie. And then the last one is, you make a seed and you look around at your neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's possessions. And so one of the Ten Commandments is covetousness. And I think it's something that we very rarely talk about or even understand. I hear people broken about sexual immorality and they're broken about you know, stealing or lying, but very rarely do you hear people broken about covetousness. And I think it's because we don't fully understand what it is. But hopefully after this morning we'll have a greater understanding. And if we're struggling with it, and I think we all do from time to time in a certain level, that God will give us a greater understanding of how to flee from it. So covetousness. The second thing that can rob us of our joy is worry. Where covetousness is a lack of satisfaction in what God has provided for us, worry is a lack of trusting God's promise to provide for us. They're kind of on opposite extremes. Covetousness is saying, you know what, I'm not happy with what I have. And worry is, you know what, I don't trust God to provide what I need. And these, these I believe, are two of the greatest things that, that can rob us from having godly contentment and peace in our, Christian rock, in, in our Christian walk. So we're going to take a look at that this morning. But quickly, by the way of review, I did want to just kind of sum up what we looked at last week. And last week we dealt with the issue of hypocrisy. And you know what? Hypocrisy in the church is rampant. And what is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is wearing a mask. It's, to, it's pretending to be something we're not. And last week we saw the two polar opposite extremes of hypocrisy. The self-righteous, legalistic hypocrisy of the Pharisees, attempting to achieve inward holiness through outward rituals, trying to prove that you're godly by the, the good works that you do. And there's a lot of people around, there to, around today that are trying to do that. And that's hypocrisy. Trying to say that something I've done will somehow earn favor with God. 
The reality is, it's not, out, it's not an outward in change, it's an inward out change. And it can only come by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we also saw a warning from our Savior to His true disciples not to fall into the trap of the Pharisees by either pretending to be something we're not, or portraying ourselves to be more righteous than we really are, or also masking our Christianity out of fear of men. And I think that's probably the high, one of the greatest forms of hypocrisy today in the church, is that we are afraid of what people think, so we are quiet about our faith. There are those who pretend to be more righteous than they are, and then there are those of us who've been born again, we're filled with the Spirit of living God, we're new creations in Christ, and we're undercover. We walk around and we don't want anybody to know we're Christians because, well, they might taunt us, they might give us grief, so we dial it down. And that's hypocrisy. But So what we do with Jesus before men is what Jesus will do with us before God. And that's how we ended last week in verse 8. It says, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. So what we do with Jesus, with the world, is what Jesus will do with us, with the Father. Are you openly proclaiming your, your walk with God? Are you, are, are you ashamed of Him? And I encouraged you last week, I exhorted you last week, as I exhorted myself, is you know what? Let's be bold for the Lord, amen? Let's go out and not be ashamed of the Gospel. Let's let the whole world know that we love Jesus. And then lastly, we saw the cure for hypocrisy, which was fearing God, not men, and confessing Christ before a lost and dying world. So we're going to pick up again this morning in verse 10, and then we're going to get into the, the rest of the text. But I want to finish this portion up that we didn't get to last week. It says, And if anyone speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. You know, it's interesting to me that this is something that people struggle with, but let me make it real clear to you. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is an unforgivable sin. It's the only unforgivable sin listed in the Bible. And you might be sitting here saying, Whoa, have I committed that? Because if it's unforgivable then I'm done. But let me say this. God the Father had a relationship with man, but man rejected the Father in the Garden of Eden. Because man rejected the Father in the Garden of Eden and chose to sin, God sent His Son. When He sent His Son, what did man do with His Son? What did He do? He rejected Him. He killed the Son. But when Jesus was hanging on the cross, what did He say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So even those who have rejected the Father and have rejected the Son, there's still one more opportunity, and that's to respond to the Holy Spirit. Who is it that draws people unto God today? The Holy Spirit. And blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is attributing the work of God to Satan, but it's also rejecting the Holy Spirit, drawing men unto Himself. And so, ultimately, if you reject the drawing of the Holy Spirit, then that's a sin that's unforgivable. And you know what? If you're here today, it's not too late. Amen? You know what, if you're breathing in and out, it's not a sin you've committed and now the rest of your life you're just waiting to go to hell. There's no man on earth like that. God, will, God desires that none should perish, no, not one. It's never too late to give your life to Jesus Christ. And so that's what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit really is all about. Reject the Spirit and it will not be forgiven because He's the last one that will call you to repentance. Verse 11 and 12. Now when you bring the synagogues and the magistrates and the authorities, do not worry about how you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you and in that very hour what you ought to say. You know what? We're going to look at worry. And worry in our lives typically is more based upon God not providing for us. But God also tells us that as we're bold for Him, and as we live a life uh, not of a hypocrite, but somebody sold out for God, that we're going to face persecution. And the Lord is telling us, when you face persecution, don't worry, because I am with you. Now this is not an excuse to never study your Bible. 
And this is not an excuse for the pastor to say, well, the Bible says right there that the Lord will give me the words to speak, so I'll just, you know, go to the beach all day and get up on Sunday and just, you know, okay, Lord, here, go. All right, there it is, right? And, and you know, it's not, that's not that excuse for us. What it's saying is that we can know that when we face persecution that we're not alone and God will give us the words to speak. How many of you have ever been witnessing to somebody and verses are coming out of your mouth that you didn't even know you remembered? Raise your hand. You know what I'm talking about, right? Somebody's, and all of a sudden these verses, and I, I didn't even remember that I knew that verse. And the verse is coming out of your mouth and the Holy Spirit's speaking. And man, don't you love that? I mean, I love that. Man, it's great. And to me, that's what I get to do every Sunday. I get to watch the Holy Spirit work because if I had anything to do with it, it would be, it would be brutal. Um, you'd all run from the building screaming. But see, so it's neat to see God work. It's neat to see what God does. And it's neat to know that God will never leave us alone. So let's pick up this morning in verse 13, and we're going to look at covetousness and worry, the things that can rob us of our peace and godly contentment, the things that can get our eyes off of God and get our eyes on the world, and the things that we need to be careful of. There are two major stumbling blocks that keep the believer from being effective in ministry, and, and again, both based on temporal focus rather than eternal one. It's getting our eyes off of God and our eyes on the world. Covetousness is wanting more than we need, and worry is not trusting God to provide what we do need. So that's the difference. Let's take a look, beginning at verse 13. And we're going to look at the sin of covetousness, because yes, covetousness truly is sin. The one from the crowd, now Jesus has just given this oration to his disciples, and he's sharing with them. He's talking to them about confessing him before men. He's talking to them about the power of the Holy Spirit, that he will be with them. And then from this crowd, this man speaks up and says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now it's interesting that here we see somebody coming to the Lord with a request about money. Now if you listen to a lot of churches today, you would think that that's all God ever wants you to ask him about, is money, right? You've seen the churches on TV, the guy's got a Rolex on and you know, a $9,000 suit and a, Ro- and a Rolls Royce out in the driveway and he's living in a $10 million house and he's telling you how you need to send him some money and how God's just waiting for you to, to release and bind and release, right? All that stuff, right? And he wants you to just release it in the name and all that money will come down. Now, let's see what Jesus has to say to this man who comes up and says, you know, tell my brother to kick me down some money. Okay, I mean, he's not being real fair with our inheritance. And could you tell, talk to him about the money? And we're just going to find out how much our Lord really worries about money and how he really cares about the things of this world. Again, people today portray God as this holy Santa Claus up in the sky. And if we just have enough faith and we command him and we just believe it hard enough, then he's got to give us a bunch of stuff. And you know what? I want to tell you something. Our God doesn't want us to have a bunch of stuff if it's going to get our eyes off of him. Amen? As we're going to see as we go through the text, we can either possess our possessions or our possessions can possess us. And I don't want anything that's going to possess me. Amen? I want to be possessed only by the Holy Spirit, only by God, serve only Him. And so this man comes and his heart and his motive is is stuff. And again, we're going to get a clear picture of our Savior's heart on, on concerning physical wealth in this parable to what we will see is the rich fool. And he said to him, man... Who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Now this is interesting. This man comes up to the son of the living God. And it was a tradition in those days that they would go to rabbis whenever they had legal matters or questions to get them rectified. And so they saw Jesus as a rabbi and they came to him and asked him about this money situation. When the father died, the the oldest son, Jewish tradition, got a double portion. And then he also you know, was the one that many times would be dividing out to his brothers what their inheritance would be. And here comes a brother coming along saying, my brother hasn't been fair with me. I want you to deal with it. And the Lord's response is, 
who made me an arbitrator over you? Now, it's not because the Lord is trying to shirk the question. But Jesus came not to divide material possessions, but to minister to spiritual needs. And He knew that no answer He'd give these men would solve their problem. The reason is that these guys were covetousness. They were covetous. And they desired things. They desired stuff. And the Lord said, you know what? I don't even have time for that. I'm not even going to answer your question. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a spiritual parable to talk to you about the sin that you're in. Instead of dealing with your money issue, I'm going to talk to you about your sin problem. Our God came, again, to open our eyes to our spiritual need, not to give us physical things. Now, again, I want to make this clear so it's balanced. Jehovah Jireh, Lord God, our provider. He provides all that we need. But the problem is, as men and women, especially in this country, more times than not, we have way more than we need, and then we still want yet even more. And that's the, that's the, fall, the problem that we fall into. It renders us ineffective for ministry. It keeps our eyes off of God because we're so focused on the stuff that the world has to offer. And so the Lord's response is, basically, He doesn't even give Him an answer. And as long as greed was their motive, no answer would satisfy. Their greatest need was that they needed to have their hearts changed. And greed revealed in the true motives of their hearts. And like many today, again, the Word of Faith movement, they come to Jesus demanding physical blessing rather than spiritual transformation. They come to God with a laundry list of stuff that they want God to give them rather than coming humbly and broken and saying, Lord, transform me and change me into your image. Instead of coming to God and saying, God, give me stuff. I've got to have this. And you know what? The Bible tells us, as we're going to see as we go through the text, that our flesh will never be satisfied. No matter how much stuff you have, you will never have peace if you do not know the Prince of Peace. They wanted Jesus to serve them, but not to save them. And again, why did Jesus come? Not to make bad men good, and not to make good men better, but to make dead men alive. Amen? He didn't come to, to make your life a little bit better and still have you end up in hell. He didn't come to, to change the way that you live here on earth. He came to make you a new creation in Christ, to transform you, to change you, that your heart would change, your focus would change, your passions would change, everything would change. As my dad would say, to save you real good, right? When someone gets saved real good, you'd see it. There's a transformation, there's a change. Your desires, your heart, everything's different. And we're going to talk about that as we continue on through the text. To seek and save that which was lost. We had no interest in officiating an argument between two greedy and covetous men. Jesus didn't have time for that. Why am I your arbitrator? Why are you even coming to me? I don't even want to talk to you about this. And he turns and he speaks to them, and instead he's going to speak to them in a parable. And in this parable, he's going to reveal spiritual truth. An opportunity for these young men to understand what it was about, but also to all who were in the hearing. And again, covetousness, the sin dressed by God and by His Word, but rarely discussed by men. Let's take a look in verse 15. And He said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Now, does that sound like the world? The world is the exact opposite. One's life consists of the abundance of things that a man possesses. He who dies with the most toys wins, right? Haven't you seen that before? And that's the way the world equates success. The guy with the biggest house and the nicest car and the most money in his bank account, that's the one who's successful. But here the Lord is saying that is not the definition of success in the kingdom of God at all. I believe in such a wealthy and affluent country, it's a sin that we all struggle with, covetousness. And again, while other sins cause us to be driven to our knees, covetousness sometimes can even be described 
disguised by the world as something good. They'll call covetousness drive. Man, he's driven. That guy's driven. Wow. You know, and we go, oh yeah, that's good. Driven. Driven's good. We'll say, uh, oh man, so industrious. Man, what a great work ethic. You know, the guy works so hard. And again, those things are good in and of themselves unless the passion of that drive and that work ethic is to attain more stuff, which most often, that's why people have it. Why do people work 80 hours a week? Get more stuff, right? You know, uh, what's your name again? Oh, uh, uh, what's your, oh yeah, yeah, Dad, it's me, it's your son. Oh, yeah, I forgot your name because I'm working 80 hours a week to get more stuff. And the world says that's driven. God says that's greed. God says, you've missed it. God says, you've gotten your eyes off me. This is why we often, again, see spiritual brokenness over other sin, but rarely do we see it over covetousness. So what is covetousness exactly? It's an unquenchable thirst for getting more and more of something we think we need to be satisfied. Or more simply put, it's wanting more of what we already have enough of. Let me say that again. Covetousness is wanting more of what we already have enough of. We already have enough, but we've got to have more. Why? Because, well, we want more. Because if we have more, we might be more happy. Because they tell us that in the Chevy commercials, right? I mean, don't they tell us, you know, if you do this, then you'll be happy. If you get this, then you'll have peace. They spend millions of dollars on advertising trying to tell us that the way to happiness is more stuff. And so we spend money we don't have buying things we don't need to impress people we don't know, right? That's what we end up doing. We end up spending money and spending stuff and doing all these things And that's what covetousness is. Covetousness is desiring to have more of something that we already have enough of. You know what? One's life does not consist of the abundance of the things that he possesses. Jesus' words are the exact opposite, again, of what the world says. Bible tells us that our flesh will never be satisfied. And the key would be, again, do you possess your possessions or do they possess you? Give me some examples. I just bought a new car. It's mine. I've been blessed with my dream house. I finally own a home. It's, it's, it's the dream that I've had for so long. I finally got that promotion at work I've been working for for years. Let me ask you a question. Do you possess them or do they possess you? And, let me, and here's how you can define it. Is it keeping you away from doing what God wants you to do because you desire this possession so bad? Is it taking you away from your calling or your ministry? Is it keeping you from ministering to your kids because now you've got to work two jobs to pay for the house you just bought because it's your dream house and you had to have it? You know what? Kids spell love. T-I-M-E. Amen? That's how my kids spell love. If I want my kids to know I love them, I spend time with them. And you know what? I could give them, I could give them a, a pony every day and a new motorcycle every week, and that would mean nothing to them compared to the time I could spend with them. And the world tells us, oh, we need to have more stuff. We need to have this. And that's where we know that we've fallen into covetousness is because we're striving for things that take us away from doing more for the kingdom of God and, and attaining more things that are going to perish anyway. And so he says in this parable, it's not the things that we possess that determines our success. That's not where the abundance of life comes from. Verse 16. Then he spoke a parable to them. The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. So here's this rich man, and he's got this ground. His business is doing wonderfully. Everything's going great. He's being blessed with an abundance. Verse 17. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? Man, I've got so much stuff that I, it's just spilling out of all my barns. I've got more stuff than I could ever possibly use in a lifetime. Let me think, what should I do? Now, he's got a couple of choices. He can either bless others or be greedy to hoard even more for himself. And we're, we know where this is headed because he's called the rich fool, right? 
And the fool is going to do the foolish thing. And by the way, we're going to see God call him a fool. If God calls you a fool, that would be no bueno, right? If God calls you a fool, that's not good, right? You don't want God calling you a fool. But God is going to call this man a fool. Why? Because he's going to store up treasures in a place where they're going to be destroyed rather than storing up treasures in heaven. The guy's going to miss it. Completely and totally miss it. Verse 18, so he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater ones. And there I will store all my crops and all my goods. I got an idea. I'll just tear down my barns. I'll build even bigger barns and I'll have more stuff. I'll have a bigger pile of dirt, right? I mean, that's basically what it is. I mean, I used to use the analogy of my job. I'm like shoveling dirt, you know. I got a pile of dirt over here, and I take a shovel, and I walk over here, and I pour the dirt over, and I just keep going back and forth, taking the dirt. And sometimes we go, man, I got a bigger pile of dirt than you. Sometimes, I go, oh, well, God bless you, bro. Knock yourself out with your dirt. Because that's what the treasures of this world are. They're all perishing. They're not going to heaven with us. The only thing we're taking to heaven with us is people. Amen? And covetousness is wanting more dirt. I got gold dirt. I got all my dirt to be silver, you know, or whatever. I got dirt. It's dirt. It's perishing. It's all passing away. And this guy's saying, oh, yeah, I got to build a bigger barn. Got more dirt. So I got to build a bigger barn, have more stuff, and everybody will know how wonderfully blessed that I am. You know, you know what this reminds me of? Something that happened just recently, and maybe happened to some of the people in this room, the Silicon Valley gold rush, I would call it, right? And you know what? I had more friends that went from nothing to millionaires, back to nothing, than I can count. And I, I mean, I think of an example. I had a guy in my office who, who sat near me and he bought this stock and in about six months it went up about 500 and some odd thousand dollars. He bought it at three bucks a share. It went to $17 a share and he's up $500,000. And I remember he sitting at my desk. I'm like, dude, what part of sell are you struggling with? Well, uh, you know, uh, I heard a rumor it might go to 80. I said, bro, it might go down to a buck, Okay. So he'd invested 100 grand. It was now worth 600 grand. He's up $500,000. But something took hold. Bigger barn. Got a bigger barn. Barns are plentiful. I, I want a bigger barn. I want more, right? Greed. Covetousness. Wanting more of something you already have enough of. Well, this morning, or actually on Friday, I looked up the stock. You know what it's trading for? A penny. It went from 500, up 500 grand to down the 100 grand he originally put in. And, you know, I'm sitting there talking to him like, bro, what part of sell are you struggling with? It's all about greed. Well, it could be worth $5 million. I know I've got a four-foot-high pile of dirt. It could be 40 feet tall, right? And this guy could have paid off his house and everything else. But, again, striving, wanting more of something I already had enough of. I have a neighbor, uh, a guy who's a good friend of mine. His company stock went up a ton. So he sold his modest house. He bought a mansion. He bought a new Porsche. He bought an RV. He bought a vacation home. He bought all this stuff. Stock kept going up. At one point, he could have sold it, paid for his mansion, paid for his RV, paid for his vacation home, paid for his Porsche, paid for everything. But, oh, but it might go up some more. Well, guess what? He's back in the modest home. He had to sell the Porsche. He had to sell the RV. He had to sell the dream house. He had to sell it all. Why? Greed, covetousness, wanting more of something he already had enough of. And, you know, maybe it hasn't happened to that degree in our own life, but we can fall into the trap of wanting stuff more than we want Jesus. Spending more time trying to attain stuff than spending time trying to conform our image and our relationship with Almighty God, the creator of the universe, the thing that's going to last for an eternity. Covetousness is a robber. It's a thief. You held up for a little more and you lost it all. And that happens over and over and over again. Look what it says here in verse 19. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take ease, rest, drink, and be merry. Eat, drink, and be merry. Now, let me ask you a question. 
I'm going to openly confess. How many of you have ever thought about hitting it rich and retiring young and just cruising the rest of your life? Raise your hand. You ever thought about it at least once? Thou shalt not bear false witness. Your hands ought to be up. Okay? Isn't that true, though? There, all of us have at least thought about that one. Oh, man, wouldn't it be good to just, you know, what if the thing, and, or would that happen, or what? And I could have millions of dollars in the bank, and then I could, you know, I could, I could give to other people, and I could just travel, and, you know, we all fall into that trap, but you know what that is? That's covetousness. Wanting more of something we already have enough of. We're saying, oh, if I could only have that, then I could do... You know what? If God wanted you to have it, you'd have it. Amen? And God wants us, whatever it's going to take to get us on our face before Him, that's what I want. Take it all, Lord. Get it all out of my life. Whatever you need to do. I'll make a bundle. I'll retire early. I'll enjoy life. And again, as Christians, we can fall into that trap to find peace, security, and comfort in the abundance of wealth and possessions. Again, often in the guise of being a good steward of God's money. But let me tell you this. Good stewardship of God's money is never robbing from the eternal to possess the temporal. Let me say that again. Good stewardship is never robbing from the eternal to possess the temporal. It's never giving away something that's eternal in order to have more stuff. It's never giving up ministry, giving up calling, giving up time with my kids, giving up you know, whatever God's called me to do so I can have more earthly stuff that's going to perish. But we've all fallen into that trap in one way, shape, or form. There are all, all of us have been times when we've done that. When we've traded away stuff that's eternal to get more stuff that's temporal. Taking on a second job or working overtime. or well, you know, I'd love to come to midweek Bible study. Or I'd love to go to women's study. Or I'd love to have my kids go to youth group. But I really can't do that because I've got to do more stuff. I've got to have a bigger pile of dirt. I'm, you know, I'm too busy striving after something I've already got enough of. A rich man is not one who has the most, but is the one who is satisfied with the least. Amen? A rich man is not one who has the most, but who is satisfied with the least. When this time has come and passed, only what I've done for Christ will last. And it's interesting because while I may be sharing this message with you, this is something that God's been ministering to me for the last several months. That you know what? I'm becoming more and more satisfied with less and less. It has nothing to do with me. It has more to do with Him. You know what? I really don't care where I live anymore. God's got me to the point, if, if we get a tent somewhere, it's all good. And you know what's neat is God's done to my wife's heart and my kid's heart. And see, I want, I, my heart is, Lord, when I stand before you, I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want, above all else. I want, Lord, to, to be a, a mighty man for you that you might be glorified. I want my life to count for eternity. I don't want to be so focused on my mortgage payment or so focused on my job or so focused on anything else, Lord, that I don't have time for you. And again, there's a happy medium in there. We have to work. God wants us to. The Bible says a man who does not work shall not eat. So we need to work. But again, do our possessions possess us or do we possess them? Do we use them for God's glory or do they keep us from God's glory? Again, when you think about this rich man, if you think, man, I wish I had his problem. I wouldn't mind trying that myself, you know, having so much stuff I didn't know what to do with it. That's a heart of covetousness. And you know what? I will openly confess there have been times in my life where I've struggled with that. If I just had a little more, then I'd be happy. I remember when I was first married, there was a number in my mind. If I had this amount of money in my bank account, then I would have peace. Yes, J.D. Rockefeller. How much money does it take before you finally have peace? Before you're finally happy? Was it 1 million? Was it 5 million? Was it 10 million? Was it 50 million? His answer was a little bit more. No matter how much you have, you want more. Why? Because the flesh will never be satisfied. Covetousness. 
desiring more of something that we already have enough of. Verse 20. But God said to him, now, here's what God says to a man with a bunch of stuff, right? Bill Gates of the day, right? Got a bunch of stuff, dirt piled higher than anybody else, barns everywhere, stuff everywhere, should have peace from the world's perspective. And what does the Lord think about this guy? What is his word? Fool. This is Jesus speaking. Exclamation point in your Bible, right? Fool. Fool. This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will all these things be that you've provided? Hey, guess what? You're going to be standing before the Creator in moments. And what are you going to do with all your stuff then? What is it, going to, what is it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Who cares how big your 401k plan is? Who cares how much money is in your Suave account or how big your house is or how much stuff you've accumulated? What's it going to mean on Judgment Day when you stand before Almighty God? When you stand before Him and He says, What have you done? Chris was teaching our Friday morning study a few weeks ago and talks about the fact that on Judgment Day, when He'll be wiping away every tear. And this is after the great white throne judgment. He's saying He'll wipe away every tear. We won't be judged for our sins, so why is He wiping our tears away? He's wiping our tears away because our heart will be broken that we didn't do more for Him. Amen? We will be grieved because we will wish that we had done more. Lord, I should have done more. Not I should have done less. Not I should have had a bigger pile of dirt. Lord, I wish I had a big house on the hill. Lord, if I only could have driven a Porsche while I was alive, boy, I would have had peace. You know, there's a, a, a guy named John Voss who was a multi-multi-millionaire. And he made this statement. He said, nothing is as fun owning as it was trying to attain. You know, the desire of trying to attain something, there's something about that. And then when you get it, you realize, oh, well, okay. Got to get that car, man. I want that new car. You get the car, and it's like, oh, all right, I got the car. New car smell starts to wear off. All right, well, I got to get the house. If I can just get the house, I'll be happy. Get the, get the house. Oh, get the house breaks, stuff breaks. Yeah, I own a home. That's great. Okay. Yeah, you know what I mean? And what happens is you realize that, that, that when you attain it, it doesn't bring the peace that you thought it would on the path to get there. Covetousness. Desiring, want, wanting more of something you already have enough of. And you know what? We are a very rich country. And we have plenty of everything. Verse 21. So, it, so is he who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. God is not impressed by the physical. And any man who trades temporal wealth for eternal poverty truly is a fool. And real tragedy is not what he left behind, but what stood before this man. And it was judgment. True wealth is godliness with contentment. Now, I don't turn your Bibles there, but I'm going to read this to you, and I want you to know where it's coming from. I thought I'd marked it in my Bible. Okay, I did. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6-12. through 12. I'm just going to read this to you. It says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these things we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold of eternal life, to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So what is it? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Covetousness will keep you from ever being content. You will never be content 
as long as your eyes are focused on things. If you're focused on the world, you'll always need a little bit more. But when you fall in love with Jesus and you get an eternal perspective, you can have joy like Corey Tinboom sitting in a Jewish prison. Sitting in a prison with all the Jews in Nazi Germany. And she had joy. Why? Because she had Jesus. You know what? The richest people on the planet are the ones that, are, that know and have a relationship with the true and living God. Amen? There's no one richer. I am way more wealthy than Bill Gates ever thought about being. Amen? Why? Because when I stand before God, it's going to be for eternity. We need to pray for Bill Gates and his salvation. But you know what? Rich men have no peace. It's amazing. I listen to sports stars. You know, Deion Sanders finally won the Super Bowl. He'd always wanted to win. He won a World Series. He'd always wanted to win. And you know what he said? No peace. Gave his life to Jesus Christ. Found peace. I heard an Atlanta Brave on the radio just, just last night while I was studying. He said, you know, in 96, I thought when I won the World Series, I was finally attained everything. And you know what? He said, in the offseason, I realized, so what? I had no peace. Found Jesus. Got peace. Amen? If you're striving for stuff, if you're striving for things, if covetousness has gotten a hold of your life, let all that stuff go. Let me say this. If you've got anything that you own that you can't let go of, sell it. Well, Pastor, what are you talking about? If, there, if there's something that's just so important to you, get rid of it. Because that's covetousness. Amen? That's striving and holding on and gripping onto something. And I, as I was praying instead, I'm like, Lord, if there's anything I have that's too important to me, let's get rid of it. Let's just get, get it out of here. Why? Because I, do, I don't want to do this. I want to do this. I don't want my eyes on the stuff. I want my eyes on you. Let's move on and look at worry. So again, what riches are of greatest importance to you? Riches toward God or riches toward the things of this world? Move on to worry. Verse 22. Then he said to his, to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Now worry. What is worry? Not trusting God to provide what we need. Covetousness is wanting more than we need. Saying what we have, what we have now is not enough. That's covetousness. Worry is saying, I don't trust God to take care of my needs. Lord, I don't trust you. So now I've got to go out and worry and get all uptight, and, and I've got to strive and try to make tap, things happen myself because I just don't trust that you'll take care of me. Worry is the opposite of faith. Fear, anxiety, and worry are all saying, God, I don't believe you, I don't trust you, and it's the opposite of having faith in Almighty God. The word worry here in verse 22 means to be torn apart. Have you ever seen somebody who's overwrought with worry? What happens to them? It destroys their health, doesn't it? Ulcers. I, I believe people have died of worry. They get, they're so consumed with worrying that it kills them. The word in the English word for worry comes from the Anglo word to strangle. And I believe that's what worry does. Worry is doubting God's promises and worry is sin. When you worry, you are sinning. Pastor Dave, come on, cut me some, well, I, I should. Is God in control? Is He in control? Amen? Is He sovereign? Is He faithful? Is he, did He promise to take care of your needs? Did He promise? Yes, He did. Is He a liar? No. Then if you're worrying, you're doubting God, and that's sin. Amen? And we're not to worry. When we worry, again, we lose our faith in God, we get our eyes off of Him. Corey Tinboom said, Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, it empties today of its strength. Worrying will not help us tomorrow. It'll just rob us today. It'll just destroy us today, and that's what it does. Look, at, Let's read on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. 
Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? Worry is foolish. Why? Because God cares for His creation. And you know what? Ravens, and I'll be honest with you, can I confess to you openly? I don't like ravens. I don't like them. When I lived in Lancaster, I mean, I, you know, I've never shot a gun in my life. Never have, never have. I've shot a pellet gun a few times at tin cans, but I've never harmed an animal. It's just not something I've ever done. And praise the Lord, I haven't. But some of those crows that would come in my backyard, if somebody had handed me a rifle, I'd have blown those things away. And not thought twice. Big old bird. You know, they're just big birds. You attack your dog and stuff. I mean, they're mean animals. I don't like them. And you know what it says here? That God cares for the ravens and makes sure that they're fed. Sometimes it was the dog food dish in my backyard. But God makes sure that these ravens are fed. Now, if He feeds the scavenger birds that none of us like, and that even are like a picture of Satan in the Bible, if He takes care of those birds, how much more is He going to take care of you who is His treasured possession, His children whom He loves? If I'm going to take care of some scavenger bird, how much more am I, a sinful man, going to take care of my own children who I love and I would die for? How much more is our Heavenly Father going to take care of you who He loves and He did die for? Amen? And so worry is foolish because it doubts the Creator. Worry is also fruitless. Look at verse 25. And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? If then are you not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Worry is fruitless because worry cannot bring any kind of physical change. It cannot produce anything good. Worry will help not one bit. All it does is bring harm. So worry is fruitless. It's sin. It's contrary to God's Word. God has promised us we need to learn to trust Him. Verse 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will He clothe you, O ye of little faith? He feeds the ravens. He will feed us. He clothed the temporal lilies of the field. He will make sure that we're clothed as well. O ye of little faith. Again, worry, the opposite of faith. Saying, God, I don't trust you to fulfill your promises. Worry, fear, anxiety is also a bad testimony to the world. You know what? As Christians, when people see us worry, they doubt our God. Amen? Wait a minute. Weren't you just talking to me about the love of God and how great God is, and now you're stressing out because you might lose your job? Wait, back up. When we, you know, again, when you squeeze a lemon, you get lemon juice. And when you squeeze a Christian, you ought to get Christ-likeness. Amen? And so when we get squeezed, we can either be fearful and anxious and worried, or we can say, God, you're, oh, you know what, Lord, I trust you. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. I know you're going to provide for me. I know you're going to care for me. And you know what, Lord, I trust you. We can either be a good testimony through trials or, or fear and worry and anxiety can cause us to be a bad testimony. How can we witness to a lost world and encourage them to put their faith in Jesus Christ when we ourselves are doubting God and worrying? That's not an attribute of someone walking with the Lord. We're almost done. Verse 29. And do not seek, that, seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nation of the world seek after and your Father that knows you need these things. Now listen to this. How do we overcome worry? First of all, you realize that our Father knows our needs so we can trust Him to meet them. Does God know your needs? Does He know that you lost your job? Does He know about your, your health? Does He know about your particular situation? The Bible says that He's numbered the hairs on your head. 
He knows everything about you. He loves you. He, as we talked about last week, He loves you so much, He can't take His eyes off of you. Amen? He's always watching you because He loves you so much. And so He knows your needs and He cares and He will not allow you to starve. He cares for you. He loves you. Look at verse 31. But seek the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. So how do we overcome worry? One, we realize that God loves us and His eyes are always on us. And two, by seeking first the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 and 34 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. There's the old song, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. When you have your eyes on Jesus, there's nothing to worry about. Amen? When you're in worship and you're in love with Him and you're in fellowship with Him, then the things of the world just fade away. And you know what? That's what I love about worship. I listen to worship music in my car all the time. Why? Because it gets my eyes off the world and it gets my eyes on God. And you know what? That's what God... You want to get away from worry? Realize... My God's eyes are always on you and seek first the kingdom of God. And that worry stuff will go away. It's impossible to spend intimate time in worship with our Savior, seeking His face, His will, and His heart, and remain filled with worry. Three more verses. Do not fear, little flock. Excuse me. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Our Father loves us, and He will withhold from us no good thing. Now, People have taken that verse and made it sound like he means, you know, Cadillac, 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 right? Give me a Porsche, give me a car, I need this, I need stuff. For me, a sports car may not be a good thing because I may be out waxing my idol out my driveway instead of spending time with the Lord. Amen? If there's anything that's going to get my eyes off of God, it's not a good thing. He will withhold from me no good thing. So that means if he withholds it from me, it's not a good thing. Amen? If I'm praying for something and I don't get it, okay, Lord, you must not want me to have it. It's yours. It's okay. Lord, I trust you. You promised to provide my needs, not my wants. Lord, I don't want my wants. I want the needs. So, Lord, I trust you. I give it all to you. And that's the Lord's desire is that we would turn away from it. Verse 33. Sell what you have. Give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old. A treasure in heaven that does not fail. Where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is... There your heart will be also. Let me ask you a question. What are you investing in today? Are you investing in, what do you invest your time, your money, your resources? There's only one place you can give that will outlast this life. And that's to the kingdom of God. Do you spend, do you give your, your time to the kingdom of God? Do you spend time in prayer, in His presence? Do you reach out to your co-workers and share with them the love of God? What is your focus on? Or is your focus on attaining more stuff? Investing in the stock market. That's not a good investment, as you've probably found out recently, right? I found out myself. My 401k, you know, oh, well, Lord, you didn't want me to have it. It's all good. Because you know what? The reality is, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. The only thing that's going to last is the things that we do for the kingdom of God. Where someone puts his time and his money reveals the priorities of his heart. You know what? When we raise up guys to be elders in this church. We don't call someone to be an elder or an assistant pastor, which I believe is what they are. It's the same word. I believe that they're already functioning that way 
before we identify it. Why? Because their passion and their heart and their desire is to serve God and it's evident to everybody. They're not doing it for accolades from men, but they just love Jesus so much they can't help it. And you know what? No one has to tell me to love my wife and nobody has to tell me to love my kids and nobody has to sit me down and force me to do it. I do it because it's a choice, it's a desire, and it's a passion that I have. The same should be true for the Lord. And where our treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasure's in your job, your heart will be in your job. If your treasure's in your kids, your heart will be in your kids. If your treasure's in the world, your heart will be in the world. But if your treasure's in the kingdom of God, then that's where your heart will be. That's where your passions will be. That's where your desires will be. And again, when this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. So in review... What is it that robs us of peace and godly contentment? One, covetousness. A lack of satisfaction in what God has provided for us. Wanting more of what we already have enough of. Again, the multimillionaire guy. I can't think of one thing that is much fun to own as it was looking forward to owning it. You know what? Your flesh will never be satisfied. Second thing is worry. A lack of trusting God's promise to provide for us. How do we overcome worry? We realize our Father knows our needs, so we trust Him to meet them. The worship team will come on up. By seeking first the kingdom of God, may we find our peace and our contentment and eternal riches of our Savior rather than attempting to find them in the empty riches of this life. And so, you know what? I want to encourage each one of us. Examine our own hearts. Are we struggling with covetousness? Are we satisfied with what God has given us? Or are we desiring more of what we already have enough of? Do we struggle with worry? Are we so consumed and saying, Oh Lord, you're not going to provide, oh Lord. And it's just gripping us to the point where we're blowing our testimony and we're not having enough faith in Almighty God. You know what? Maybe examine our hearts and say, Lord, help me. And the way we do that is we realize that God loves us, He's in control, and He cares for us. And by seeking first the kingdom of God. And when you do those things, the worry and the covetousness and all that other stuff will fade away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You again. We thank You that our sufficiency is in You, not in the cares of this world or the things that this world has to offer. We just ask, Father God, by the power of Your Holy Spirit, You would transform each of our lives, that our eyes would be on things above, not on things of this earth. Lord, that we'd have an eternal perspective, not a temporal one. And Father God, we would never trade the eternal for the temporal. We would never trade away the things that are going to last forever for things that are all going to be wood, hay, and stubble one day. And Father, I just thank you and praise you, Lord, again for each person who's here. Just pour out your Spirit upon them, Father. Encourage them. Strengthen them in their walk with you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's all stand and close the worship song.